I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello and welcome back to In AI We Trust. Today we are very sorry that Kay is traveling and can't join us, but we are delighted to be joined by Kathy Baxter. Kathy, welcome back. Hello, so happy to be back here again. Well, we are delighted to have you. I know you've been all over the world. Tell us where you've been most recently. Yes, it's it's been quite a lot of travel, but I got to return to Singapore again. It's my annual trip to participate in Singapore's Ethical Use of AI and Data Advisory Council, but also got to speak at the ATX Summit and was very happy to represent Salesforce as one of the premier members of Singapore's Global AI Verify Foundation, a nonprofit to help organizations create responsible AI. So it was a fantastic trip. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, we also have been having some fun at Equal AI, getting our white paper together, which will hopefully be launched soon and participating in some really interesting events. The Council of Foreign Relations last week hosted their annual summit. We were privileged to join a panel and and speak with leading experts and and hear from the foreign policy community on, on how AI and generative AI fits into their lens and some other communities recently that just has really uh, sparked my imagination as to opportunities and risks as we continue to navigate the somewhat new terrain. But today I am so excited also in addition to this podcast that we are doing something at NIAC, the National AI Advisory Committee that I've been looking forward to doing since we launched and that is really engaging deeper in stakeholder outreach. We have our second of four conversations today with different community leaders and hearing from various communities. What are you interested in? What are you worried about? How can we, within our mandate to advise the president and the White House on AI policy, give meaning to you? How can we represent your interests? How can we have impact? Uh, So we started this conversation last Tuesday. We'll have one today, two more next week. They're all publicly available and the the recordings will be available if you're not able to catch it. So something that really excited about and hope to do much more of in the coming year. But something that I'm also very excited about to do with you today is have a conversation with Chris Wood, executive director and co-founder of LGBT Tech, as a wonderful way to both learn more about an important member of our community, as well as in our celebration of Pride Month. So let's jump in. Hello, and welcome back to NAI We Trust. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Christopher Wood executive director and co-founder of LGBT Tech, and was chair of the FCC Commission Equity and Diversity Council, Diversity and Equity Working Group. Chris has founded three nonprofits focused on LGBTQ communities, the LGBT Tech Institute, the LGBT Tech Partnership, and Shenandoah LGBTQ Center in Staunton Pride. Chris is also the COO of a company he and his husband co-founded, Redwood and Company, an international B2B and B2C business selling home fragrance, bath and body and home decor. He does a lot of things. He has also been an adjunct professor around entrepreneurship and has spoken at over 100 events in the last 10 years. It seems like even in the last few weeks alone. So we'll look forward to hearing more about that. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. 
So would love to share with our listeners, when did you first become interested in the AI space? And at what point did you first begin to be interested in exploring the intersection between DEI and tech? So it's definitely a two-part question. Artificial intelligence, I think from a very young age has always been interesting to me or the concept of it has been interesting to me. Uh, I like to refer to myself as a nerd at heart. I was the kid that Love to watch Discovery uh, in particular, love to watch how things work. Um, although I wasn't, you know, like the destructive kid that pulled things apart because I think my parents would have not been happy with me. But I, I really wanted to know how things worked, why they connected together. And I think I really found that passion when I actually got to work for Discovery Communications. Uh, and I began understanding how they started tracking and understanding their viewers, specifically through the Nielsen rating system uh, and some of the books. And it really connected for me when I started to be part of some of the research that happened in the field, as well as events that happened on the ground. Because I got to see these really big marketing campaigns that were clearly targeted towards a particular audience and the response on the ground. And that was really the first time where I started seeing the impacts of larger data sets on the way that we communicate with people as companies, as organizations, as a government. And it, it was immediately interesting to me in so many ways. Um, and I think really continued to drive my interest in this space. To the second part of your question about DEI and, and tech, you know, I think, as we started the organization and, and co-founded it, we were really looking at what was the current representation of LGBTQ individuals uh, in and around technology spaces. Sure, many of us have heard the reports about the lack of diversity and representation in some of these spaces, but we really started at the ground level. We, we started with a report looking at the National Broadband Plan, which was written for and by portions of the Federal Communications Commission, and what we realized is that LGBTQ communities weren't considered in that at all. And yet communications was one of the key lifelines for our community. The ability to connect with each other and find community, the ability, even before that, the ability to identify before you speak a word about your sexual orientation, gender identity, or any of that, you're doing that exploration on your own and the internet and the ability to find information because there wasn't a lot of visual representation on traditional media outlets, that was really the only outlet. And that was true for me as well. As a, as a young gay man, I spent a lot of time on the internet, you know, back when there was dial up and we heard that scratching and screeching and, and it tied up phone lines, you know, that was my safe haven to begin exploring my sexual orientation um, and begin recognizing that I wasn't alone. Um, and what we found with those reports and connecting that DEI in tech was that there are so many LGBTQ voices out there that also felt potentially the same way. And that in, in reality, our community was some of the highest adopters of technology, sometimes at two times the pace of their heterosexual counterparts, because it meant that they could form their own identities and then form the community in which they felt most comfortable or that they could closely identify with. This really brings to mind to me the importance of that digital access. What if you hadn't had that access at that time to be able to find those communities? And as a society, we are absolutely becoming more and more digitally dependent. So can you talk to us a little bit about digital equity? 
how do we strive to achieve this and and what would success look like for you? I've definitely thought about this in many different ways. Success for us as an organization means that we no longer need to exist because the voice is there, it's naturally there. And so I'll start with the end in mind. But I really like the way that you pose that question because equity is important. And equity is not meaning that we are all receiving equal things or equal access. Equity is about receiving the access that you need in order to be successful and be at the same level as everyone else. And this is true across the community because I recognize most people can't see me, but I'm a gay white man. And that comes with a lot of privilege in the community. But when you're talking about our BIPOC, Latinx, Asia Pacific Islander, LGBTQ communities, especially if they're identifying within the trans community, intersex, asexual, bisexual, the visibility for a lot of those individuals is so low, or they're in communities where they don't feel safe in coming out for a whole host of reasons. And on top of that, there's a whole nother piece of that is that you can be a black trans man and have a disability, which is multiple factors of potentially limiting spaces for you to engage in, find community, be heard, find resources, find health resources, and really feel a part of something. And so I'm going to go back to that piece of it's important to recognize that equity is about making sure that people have the tools that they can really use to be on an equal playing field and an equal opportunity field with everybody else. And so that equity is so important. I think about this, and I wanna dive a little bit deeper here because I think we're, we're in a crucial point. We've been in a crucial point for a while because there are certain communities, certain portions of the community who haven't had access to the technology that is available to us today. Think about even most recently the metaverse headsets. Not everybody has had access to that. It, it's, it is more of a potentially luxury good and can be very expensive, but yet that is you know potentially the space that we're heading in. It's also a space where there's a lot of data being collected, a lot of data being used to help inform different data sets. And when we don't have certain portions of the community a part of those data sets, then we are not including them, their unique experiences, and being able to provide them with the equitable access. So it really is a full circle piece. Uh, it's really a chicken and the egg scenario where you're not quite sure which is first, but I can tell you this round and round scenario, if we're not ensuring there's inclusion and we're not ensuring that there's a space for these individuals to really participate in technologies that are already out or newer technologies like AI, they're already in, in a space where they're behind. And that's really unfortunate. You've illustrated so many important points there. You've obviously given so much thought to what it means to have equality and equity and an equal playing field, as well as a seat at the table, which you've done by creating some important organizations and participating in others. So tell us more about the mission at LGBT Tech. Other than putting yourself out of business by creating equity, what, what do you hope to achieve in the near term? And what do you think is the role of civil societies groups in general in ensuring that we have more equity in the tech space? So LGBT Tech's mission really works at the intersection of the LGBTQI plus two-spirited community and technology, all technology. And we really work to ensure that there are voices at the table, that we are conducting research either 
on our own with academic partners, with civil society partners, or even business uh, to better understand how LGBTQIA individuals are using the technology, how they may not be using the technology, where there may be bias or where there may be discrimination or where there may be benefits. And we do that in multiple facets. You know, that research piece is a key component. Everything we do starts with research. We're not going to engage in something unless we start with research. And that also includes building it. So when I say we're working in the metaverse, that means we're actually building in the metaverse. A lot of my team has headsets. We're actively involved in it. We're working within spaces that are LGBTQ safe, LGBTQ inclusive, maybe not totally inclusive or representative of our community. And also within spaces like AI, we are building pieces of technology in AI to better understand how this can be used from, from different perspectives. And so that research component is so important because it drives into our programmatic arm and that programmatic arm provides access to that technology. So helping to solve that solution by distributing technology, um, whether it be basic phones, laptops, tablets, or desktops into, into centers, 107 centers currently across the United States, uh, across 37 states and two U.S. territories. Uh, that also includes 13 African countries where we've partnered with another organization to begin understanding and working with some of our most economically economically depressed, economically despaired communities or uh, those communities where it's punishable by as harsh as death to identify as LGBTQ. We recognize that there's a lot of opportunity and those experiences are important to bring online uh, because that's part of our family. That's part of our community as well. And it's important that we understand how they're using technology and why it's important uh, for them. And so these spaces and, and the way that we've built this has really driven to ensure that we're not only doing the research, we're, we're connecting with the community members across the country and around the world, and then using that to inform policymakers, not through anything but policy education, making sure that they have the information at their fingertips because for so long, the LGBTQ community has been one of the most understudied communities, left out communities uh, when it comes to research and data. And of course, we want to make sure that individuals are safe if that data is collected. We want to make sure that it's de-anonymized and we want to make sure that we're not putting anyone in harm's way. But I have to underscore that it is important that that data is collected because if that data is not collected, then we are not counted and we do not have a voice. And so ensuring that that data collection continues to happen really feeds the feedback loop to show we're counted. And I want to underscore this from a, a perspective that I heard just the other day, and I was looking at these numbers in the fact that as of 2023, 7.2% of the United States identifies within the LGBTQIA community. That is up from 5.6% in 2020. That's a huge jump. It represents about 18.9 million Americans here in the United States. I don't think a lot of people realize that that is more veterans than we have in the United States, which is crazy to me. 11 million identifies bisexual. That's larger than the population of the state of Georgia. I can keep going with those figures, but it's really mind-blowing to, to see that we're not just a small portion of the population, we are a huge portion of the population, and it's important that we are counted and it's important that we're represented in these spaces. That is amazing. One of the things that you, you mentioned uh, a moment ago were your programs, and as I understand it, uh, LGBT Tech has two programs, Power On and Paths. Uh, which empower and highlight LGBTQIA individuals. 
Can you tell us more about those uh, two specific programs? I think you touched on some of that work already, but maybe you could like explicitly uh, tell us about each of those programs. Absolutely. So we actually have four programs. Two are out of research and development and two are still in. The two that are out of research and development are actually the Power On program, which was our very first program. And it started uh, with our Connect for Life research, where we really began to understand the representation of homeless or, or housing insecure youth within the United States, which represents about 40% of the young adult homeless population in the United States. And that's really based on point in time counts when they go out into a state and count in one day. As of right now, that 40% equals about 1.6 million LGBTQ individuals on the streets through these point in time counts, which is about equal to the population of Philadelphia, which is a huge city in the United States. And so recognizing through that Power On program, we we saw and, and through some of the research, Dr. Eric Rice out of UCLA did some research around these, these communities and saw that they were literally pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. They were using technology to go ahead and connect to Wi-Fi services, even if they didn't have it on their own, or they were using public available services to be able to find resources, find community, find shelter, find LGBTQ centers. And we recognized that this was an opportunity for LGBT tech to jump in. And we created the Power On program. We started distributing technology on the streets of Washington, D.C., with 25 cell phones, with data, talk, and text, and no strings attached, because a lot of these individuals in these spaces have a lot of strings attached. Um, and we wanted to make sure we fully understood what has happened. And that goes to the way we've built these programs. They're minimum viable projects. We've continued to edit them and alter them based on the data we're receiving to make sure we're meeting the community where they are and not putting undue stress on them to be able to access things like a phone or the internet because they're already under a lot of stress. And the organizations that we're working with and distributing this technology through that 107 centers are already working with large populations and potentially very impacted populations. So that Power On program has grown over the years. This year alone, we'll distribute over $120,000 worth of technology, if not more. We're in the process of doing that right now. And over the course of the lifetime of that program, we've distributed over $400,000 worth of technology. Our second program is our PATHS program, uh, which I'm extremely proud about. And it's really born out of the idea that there's a lack of diversity in STEAM fields, science, technology, engineering, arts, as it relates to like design, uh, UX design, so on and so forth, and mathematics. And I attended a lot of events at the Obama White House um, and different events on Capitol Hill around this space. And I recognize that there's just no silver spoon that's going to fix that. It is a systemic problem. It's about representation. It's about being counted. It's about visibility. And so we developed that program to really start giving visibility to current LGBTQ STEAM professionals to talk about how they got into their fields. If you're in this field, so many technologists, so many people in STEAM fields have ended up in their positions in some really wild ways. Um, and I think it's important that they tell those stories because it gives visibility for younger LGBTQ adults to think about how to go into those fields. In addition to that, that PADS program, we distribute STEAM uh, educational grants, and those can be applied to a traditional university, a traditional education, or they can be applied to a coding boot camp or something that is you know, more about learning a skill. And we've distributed $75,000 this year alone into those uh, across 18 individuals. In addition to that, we built a mentorship program where we have 29 mentees that are currently in a year-long program where they have monthly to bi-monthly interactions with current STEAM professionals where they can really talk and begin 
either in a group setting or even one-on-one -on -one start talking to people within their specific fields and start asking questions. That, that, was, that part was really born out of the fact that I've been in corporate America. Sometimes these mentorship programs are like, they're like, okay, well, you know, if you two are identified with the LGBTQ community, go and talk. That doesn't really work. There may not be a lot in common, but you maybe have something in common in the fact that, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a military brat. I moved around a little bit and that is a you know particular way of growing up. And that may be a connection that I have. Maybe it's a particular field that I'm interested in. Uh, maybe it's the fact that I'm an immigrant into this country and identify as LGBTQ and talking to somebody about that experience would be really important. Um, and so we recognize the different pieces uh, of mentorship and recognize that it comes in many different facets. The two other programs that are not uh, out of R&D, one is around it's LGBT, it's XR LGBTQ, and that is really building in the metaverse and, and expanding the metaverse, hopefully to have that one out by the end of the year. And then, like I said, we're building an AI. So we actually have current projects that are underway, pulling together large language models uh, that will help benefit the community and help our leaders and our community organizations make better decisions about what's happening in states and with public policy. So more to come on that. I'm really excited about it. I don't want to give away too much yet because we're still testing a lot of it and just seeing what works and doesn't work, but we're really proud of, of that work. We'll come back because we want to hear more about that. But in the meantime, Chris, wow, it is inspiring to hear how much impact you are having, not only with your thought leadership, which is tremendous, but in these programs where you are actually empowering people, supporting them, investing in the pipeline, investing in them, as well as the research. Um, and I think when you're giving some of these clear examples of needs and challenges, it's really helpful so that others can understand what it is that you're contending with or trying to remedy. For instance, in the data collection, you know, you touched on a really challenging point. On the one hand, there's privacy concerns if you're collecting data. On the other hand, how will you know if you are providing equitable services to LGBTQ plus individuals if you don't study and collect that data in some way. So that's something that we often grapple with, and I hope we'll continue to learn with you and from you on, on the best practices there. But another area where I know you've weighed in is on facial recognition technology, which is powered by artificial intelligence and how it specifically can impact the community that you serve. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one example and, and some of the concerns and potential opportunities you found there. Yeah, I mean, for for one, let's start with the opportunities. The ability for, you know, someone within a safe space that they feel safe in and that that place has set up a safe space for them, the ability for them to interact within that space, but maybe not necessarily have to identify themselves or identify who they are at all times, it could potentially be important. And what I mean by that is I think about a space like the metaverse. We actually are partnered with Inner.World, which is a platform built completely HIPAA compliant, but it's a space that's built on the idea of cognitive therapy rules and cognitive therapy tools. And so the space is really designed to create a safe space for people to have conversations, to maybe bring some of the things that they're struggling with and have a conversation from a peer-to-peer -peer support space. Um, you know, that I've met people in there that I would have never met out in the public or the real world because either they don't have a space to go to, they've never been to an LGBTQ bar or a place of business or center, and nor do they plan to go. And so recognizing that, you know, parts of our community come with a lot of anxiety and rightfully so. I mean, there is 
historically, anti-sodomy laws, the lavender scare, police raids, like data has been used against us before data existed the way it does today. And so those that are, you know, know that history and understand it are rightfully afraid. And today we have the same thing happening where I think last year alone, don't quote me on these numbers, but somewhere around 320 to 350 anti-LGBTQ bills were introduced into state houses. And we have, although 91% of them failed, we still had 9% passed, which is just alarming. And to date, we've had over 530 introduced this year alone. Uh, And so people are rightfully scared about how their information is being used. When we're thinking about facial recognition, think about having a picture taken in public, have a, a picture or a video taken in public where you're identified by maybe a, a government that doesn't support LGBTQ by state governor that is trying to track down LGBTQ supportive organizations or organizations he feel, they feel are breaking laws in their state. Facial recognition has a really big point of contention and potential harm for our community. So I see the benefits where in the beginning I was talking about It's an opportunity where someone that maybe is anxiety-ridden has the opportunity to go into a space where they feel safe and they don't have to constantly be talking about who they are. That is a really powerful tool. But then in the same time, it can be really harmful, you know, depending on if law enforcement or different agencies are tracking individuals, it's just really detrimental. We've seen cases where information has been scraped off the internet, visuals, facials, you know, think about a pride parade, if those are used and then facial recognition is applied to those, that can be really damaging for an LGBTQ person. Maybe it's an LGBTQ teacher in a state where they are not supported, LGBTQ are not supported, trans are not supported. That could be really damaging for an individual um, or an entire community in that space. And so I think it's a few examples of the, the positives and potential negatives. And we've definitely continued to evaluate this because again, I go back to my original statement of data collection is important. Data collection gives us a voice, but it's important for companies and those collecting this data to make sure that certain data is considered sensitive. Things that could be identifiable information, things that could identify SOGI information, sexual orientation, gender identity information, that should be treated as sensitive. And companies should be making sure if they want to build trust with this community, they want to build a continuing and lasting relationship with this community, of which, as I described earlier, is big, then they need to make sure that those safeguards are in place, that they're communicating clearly with the community, and that they are internally putting those processes in place that protect that sensitive information. All of those are such incredibly important points. I just, I can't emphasize enough your points about the importance of representation in data sets, getting those representative data sets. You've talked a lot about the metaverse, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about what other unique risks uh, might be present in emerging technology, and in particular, AI technology for the LGBTQIA community. And what immediately comes to mind if, for me is generative AI and um, how the the training data for these very powerful systems um, are not representative and can be very harmful. So could you uh, share a little bit about what some of the unique risks are that you have identified with some of these emerging technologies? Absolutely. Yeah, there is an issue, very importantly, as you outlined, about representation. And historically, 
we haven't necessarily been represented in a lot of data sets for a variety of reasons. I will tell you, I've had conversations with companies that are afraid to collect this data because they don't want it to blow back on them. They don't want something to happen where it's inadvertently released and it puts a bunch of people at risk. Inherently, companies, I think, are trying to do the right thing. You know, For the majority, I'm not speaking across the board. I'm just saying inherently, they're trying to do the right thing and sometimes that means just not collecting at all or deleting it, which keeping in mind that the deletion of that data can also show glaring holes, especially if you're only deleting it around one community, one or two communities, that can also be identifying as well. You know, within AI, there's also bias, built-in bias of, of various parts of that data that you're going to be collecting. You don't know what bias is in there. You know, half the times we don't know what bias is presented for BIPOC communities, Asian Pacific and Islander communities, Native American communities, you know, these communities that are really small, if we don't ask the question, we don't know if we're talking to a person that identifies within those communities, you know, that bias could be represented in that data in a really awful way. And you're talking about generative AI. I think one of the things where kind of tying both images and, and video into that, I think it's also important to recognize where you may be collecting data that is around a sensitive data that you may not know is sensitive. For example, if you have someone that selects mail in a profile, like a dropdown when they're signing up for an account, and then they go to create their avatar, but their avatar clearly is putting on, you know, in society terms, in a binary term, is putting on address. And so is the computer or the AI system going to confuse that is it going to treat it as sensitive is that a sensitive data would the system know to treat that as sensitive data maybe the the metaverse we've talked about is a space for individuals to explore identities and do it in a way where they can do it anonymously and so i think there's also risk factors there where there's data being presented that could then be picked up by ai and put into these models that may not necessarily translate or have been recognized. And there is a solution for this. It is about representation in these fields. Because when you have an LGBTQ voice at the table, when you have a you know an LGBTQ organization, you're working within civil society, or you're hiring LGBTQ people to be on the table, I'm not saying it's their responsibility to be the full representative of the LGBT community. Let me be very clear about that. But as long as a company is making every effort to hire diversely, to work with civil society and work with organizations like LGBT tech that are working in these spaces and advising companies and poking holes in their systems, you have less of a chance of potentially running afoul or running risk when it comes to some of these potential areas of risk. I know this has been said in a lot of articles. We have a lot to learn. <laughs> AI is is at the, the very brink. We're just, just scratching the surface here. But I would also encourage not only the participation by companies and organizations, but civil society, I call on civil society to be building in these spaces, to be learning about data practices, to be understanding how AI works, building in AI, because if we're not actively participating in this from civil society perspective, then we don't have a seat at the table. We don't have a voice when it comes to our community, and we're not doing what we need to by our community's side to make sure that we're supporting them and finding the potential pitfalls or benefits where this this technology could really drive impact, change, diversity, and representation for the community. So many important points there. And, you know, I think a really important point also to underscore is when you're talking about thinking broadly in diversity and your hiring and making sure you have representation, 
part of it is to reduce the risks and liability. And if that's what drives someone, fine. But I'll tell you, you know, there are so much opportunity. Who would not want to create a broader opportunity to serve well, whether it's in a corporate space, you, you have more consumers that are able to benefit from your products who feel heard and who feel seen by your products or any organization. And, and I, I think of that also because, you know, some of the stories and insights you're sharing really resonate with members of our own Equal AI team who've shared their experiences and help us shape how we can be speaking effectively, where we need to direct our efforts to make sure that we're having impact with different communities. So I know whether you're corporate, civil society, we all benefit from having these different voices, not just to risk offending one another or creating liability, but we, we can do better for it. So along those lines, we'd love for you to share with us, what are other ways that AI can or does good? Uh, how can AI empower communities? You've given us a few examples, but I'm wondering, what do you think are some of the greatest opportunities that AI can present for the LGBTQ plus community? I mean, thinking about some of our young users or just maybe even some of the first things that I typed into it just to play around with it, which is, you know, Give me the the top ten list of uh, LGBTQ activists, you know, within the last fifty years. Like ensuring that that type of information is available on AI, that it actually has that within its systems, that that representation is there is important and important for a young person if they're exploring their identity. You have youth nowadays using it as like they're talking to their friends. It's like they're having conversation with their friends. And so if it's not equally representing like what the community is made up of or doesn't necessarily have the information, I think that's, that's really troubling. I think it's also important to make sure that we're not over-regulating too fast is something that I know that probably pushes against the grain of some, but you know, I, I want to make sure we're protecting, but I also want to make sure it, it's almost like section 230. We have the sword and the shield. So we want to make sure that we're providing a shield for our community and that there's protection there and there's not harm done, but we also want to make sure there's the sword of cutting out things that are really harmful, negative, bad. So the last thing we want is a young person to use things like AI that develops something or spits something out about the LGBTQ community that could be really negative or really harmful. I think about things like conversion therapy. I think about things like religion and how religion has played into the LGBTQ community. And you have all different facets there. I have friends that are highly religious. I have friends that are atheists um, and the every nuance in between there. And so I think there's a lot of potential here. There's a lot of potential for organizations to do better work, to do more work, to work more effectively by using things like AI. And I think continuing to explore those opportunities, building those opportunities, having conversations like this that are that are talking about spaces that can that can happen, I think are key places where, we have the opportunity to empower our community in these spaces. And it all starts with involvement. It all starts with inclusion. It all starts with visibility and access. Um, and so continuing to push those pieces really heavily right now and making sure that we're being effective uh, in that communication, in that training, in that education, and the opportunity to gain access to it is extremely important. Awesome. Well, I could talk to you forever, but I I think we're probably getting close to wrapping up our, our conversation. We always like to close the show by asking our guests one final question. If you had a magic wand to achieve one wish to create responsible AI, 
what would that be? My wish would be that the data was being collected in a way that was safe for the community. It was being implemented and either synthesized or, you know, or duplicated. So we're not outing individuals, um, uh, but in a way that actually is reflective of the community and provides a clear picture for those systems to use large language models for them to use to be able to effectively describe and interact and provide resources to the LGBTQ community. I think it 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 really worries me that without the amount of data that we need, with the lack of representation across the country and around the world, that I think we're going to continue repeating what we've seen in technology where there is bias, there is discrimination, there is a lack of diversity, and, and therefore there's a lack of diversity in, and therefore there's a lack of diversity out. So if, if I could wave a wand, it would be that that data would all be there, it would all be safe, there wouldn't be anybody outed by it, and the LGBTQIA plus two-spirited community would be fully represented when it came to AI. Thank you so much, Chris. I think we've all learned so much certainly inspired and humbled by all you're doing. And really, thank you for taking the time to join us today. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me and look forward to talking again soon. Yes, we will too. Well, Kathy, I had high expectations for what we would hear from Chris in that discussion today. And I have to say they were exceeded. Thinking about the challenges he has taken on with his work, thinking about his deep thought in this space. And then the way he's brought it to action is really inspiring. It's humbling to imagine how much impact he's been able to have with his organization. I was so struck by his own experience with tech that he shared and that um, he shared so many others have where technology has helped him learn and helped so many LGBTQ plus members of the community learn that they were not alone, as well as learning more about their identity. I know members of our own Equal AI family have shared that it was a safe place as a young child to understand, you know, why am I feeling different? What am I? What is this? And then to be able to take it a step further and understand that you're not alone, to know that there is a community, there are others who may see the world similar to you is so important. It's so important. We know that having a community is, is really everything. It's so empowering. It's such a measure of safety as well as joy. Then thinking about the layers of challenges, because in those communications, you can be presenting yourself with a risk depending on what state you're in, what their laws are, where in the world you sit, and what your government regime response is to your safety. And so thinking of technology as both a safe place and an area where it can be a tool used against you and such a wonderful way that he shared how people are perceiving these dualities in his work and his society and his community. And then also to just think about the way that he's having impact on a daily basis with actual investment in the pipeline, making sure that we have more diversity in tech, not just by talking about it, but by investing in, by inspiring people and making sure that they have real mentorship, which as we both know is so key in order to be able to stay in a challenging field and, and uh, enter it in the first place, but staying in it, which is equally hard, if not harder, as well as the really interesting work he's doing to study the impacts, to study the, the opportunities and build an AI himself. So 
just really blown away by all the deep thought and, and impact he is having in his work and would love to hear your thoughts and your big takeaways. Yeah, this was really fantastic. So much of what we talk about, what we think about is driven by hype cycles and and the media and what the media is focusing on. And, you know, right now is Pride Month. And so thinking about our friends and family and community in the LGBTQIA plus community, like it's all top of mind right now, but it has to remain top of mind. We can't stop talking about this. We can't stop thinking about this when Pride Month is is passed and it's another, you know, we're in a different month focusing on a different community. Representation in our data sets is so critical. And I just loved something that he said, data collection shows we're counted. It shows we're heard. And that's just so powerful. And some states have stronger privacy laws than others. Some countries have stronger privacy laws than others. But it is so critical to ensure that we're collecting data, but we're doing it in a way that is responsible. But his point about some companies have good intentions by intentionally not collecting some data or quickly deleting some data because they want to protect the communities, but then it erases them. And so having these voices at the table can help companies make better, more responsible decisions. I always come back to the phrase of designing with us, not for us, rather than trying to be a protector and coming in and thinking about, oh, I'm going to decide what's best for your community. Have a conversation, talk to the community to find out what is best for them. And then the other thing that really stood out to me is you know, in my world, it's all generative AI all the time. Like it's, it's just sucked all the air uh, out of, out of the room. And I haven't thought about the metaverse in a long time. Now, part of that is probably because, you know, I'm working at Salesforce. We don't do the metaverse, but this was a large part of the conversation with Chris and the community that can flourish within the metaverse. He talked about conducting cognitive therapy in the in the metaverse and, and being able to meet and engage with people and in context or in environments that they might never have the opportunity to experience and just how powerful that is. And so he brought up so many different points that were were so powerful. And I think aren't included in a lot of the conversations that in the responsible AI or emerging tech field just might not be talking about, but we need to make sure that we're always talking about it and not just during Pride Month. So true. So true. This needs to be a constant thread of our conversations. And and if you don't have enough motivation to do the right thing, well, how about his point that LGBTQ community is the highest adopter of tech? And many, many reasons why companies should make sure that they are engaging the LGBT community in their building of AI, in their development, in their deployment to make sure that it's done hand in hand and in a thoughtful way, as well as 
bringing greater equity, which he points out. Uh, and I, I really appreciated his distinction of equity from equality and um, giving us all an equal playing field to succeed. We all want to succeed. We all deserve to succeed. So what can we do to make sure that we all are in the same place in order to be able to do so? I can't think of a, a better way to celebrate Pride Month than to hear about his important work and, and try and think about ways that we all can be supportive and, and learn from his lead as well as his thought leadership. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today for this important episode. Thank you for having me. This was uh, such a fantastic podcast and I was so happy to be able to be part of it. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want more unique content, please head over to Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.